the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not, um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore have been locations where um, faith particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are uh, persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over instead of a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we thought was nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. But until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? 
I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as a as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or or, or theocracy or or, or or theology or things of that nature, and so it probably was my second choice. So I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is um, an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by uh, governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, we're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrary into this notion of, of again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control in society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians misused it, but they still had this control. What's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But, yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's it's, it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever educated you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. 
Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, they're, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual, uh, a sense of, uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So, uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now has become a minority group. And uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Brief time out, back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Uh, seemingly, um, uh, what's the best way to phrase this? Um, inconsistently applied. And, and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a, a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or 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 in, in, not not consistently applied? Well, I think that those with Christianophobia, they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians will be comfortable with, but others, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, it should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with. And then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot 
thought experiment of America that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see? Is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it, and now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can't pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so uh, the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for, for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. What about those that would argue that for there to be any uh, demonstration of, of uh, true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone studied race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, 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 what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belong to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while they, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end, it begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. 
and yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore uh, there there is this label now that's associated, and I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically uh, concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming in and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive, and so. While, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things where we victimize some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented, I told you about, when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a it's sort of a both and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians, but we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people with Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous. I mean, on and on the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there, there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that to uh, a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this, and we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together. Uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice, and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of um, 
skim the surface of this very deep topic, you can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I have to tell you right now that my next guest is by no means any sort of a financial expert, but he is a leading theologian. In fact, he serves as president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He has a nationally syndicated Christian apologetics radio and TV program. And at one time, um, said headed up the uh, Department for Teen Apologetics at Focus on the Family. We have asked Dr. Alex McFarland to join us on the program to drill down to an aspect of the current economic crisis in Washington, D.C. at a level that nobody is talking about but we need to be talking about. And that is, you know, when the Bible encourages us, for example, to to not be a debtor. Um, there's sound reason as to why God is giving us this warning, and yet we see that so many of the money principles that were taught in Scripture have been ignored time and time and time again. That leads us to, I think, a very important question as Christians, and that is, as we look at the economic crisis unfolding, Wall Street in Washington, D.C., and uh, impacting the lives of millions of Americans, uh, is this purely a matter of numbers, or is there some morality behind all of this? And I'm going to suggest to you that Alex McFarland is going to say, yeah, there's, there's a good deal of morality behind this, that in fact it is a tremendous disregard for fundamental biblical principles on the topic of of money management that got us into this mess in the first place. And Dr. McFarland, is always a delight to have you on the show. Well, Craig, thank you very much. That's a very gracious introduction. I'm not worthy of it, but it's always an honor to be on Lifeline. I appreciate the work you do. Thank you, sir. Well, let's talk a bit about... This mess that we're in today, you know, there's a lot of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth we've seen, uh, the political posturing over the last several days. Many have opined uh, to the conclusion that uh, Congress let us, they could have done this thing weeks and weeks ago, but of course that would have uh, robbed them of the opportunity of the 30-second soundbite presence on the 6 o'clock news. Uh, what, what do you make of... Number one, the overall management, the handling of these 535 individuals in Washington, D.C., of the current crisis. Well, you know, I think it's, it's uh, deplorable, the, the state that we're in. I think our founding fathers would be very distraught to where we, we've gotten because we're addicted to spending. We, we just, we, we really are. And uh, while, you know, the president is trumpeting um, all of the cuts, um, you know, think about this. Um, it, it, at one point in the negotiations, the 2012 budget was to be cut by $36 billion. The final number was $7 billion. And um, also, the, um, the, the cuts that were made, some uh, $2 trillion, uh, it's been estimated that the cuts that were needed to really rein in our financial problems would have been 15 times that. And so we're, we're a nation addicted to spending. We uh, our nation that, uh, you know, think about this. Um, thanks to our, our vice president, the, um, uh, the Pentagon budget has been cut by some 917, uh, I'm sorry, $350 billion in Pentagon cuts. 
the, the Department of Defense is being uh, very much underfunded, while the, the real source of our uh, financial you know, struggles, entitlements, uh, really weren't touched. And so uh, I think that money uh, on an individual level, on a family level, on a national level, the way one handles money is very indicative of character and values. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it's not hard to see that the way our nation is handling money right now shows uh, the, the bankruptcy of character. Yeah, it's interesting so because the Bible says a lot about slothfulness. Uh, it goes far as to say that he who does not work shall not eat. And it's interesting to see that some of those very fundamental biblical principles that have been repeatedly ignored uh, by not just Washington, D.C., but let's bring this even into a broader aspect, uh, Dr. McFarlane, and that is by America. I mean, let's face it, a lot of what we're seeing going on when it comes to bad money money management and and a lack of, of, of basic principled uh, understanding of how money should be dealt with uh, is not indicative of just a bad job of 535 or so people in Washington, D.C. It, it really gets down to even the mentality that we have in a lot of American families today about money. Sort of this, you know, borrow it and run the credit card up and don't give much thought to it and, you know, we'll worry about, let, let tomorrow worry about itself. That sort of a thing, that which may, leads me to believe that there's a level of culpability here at a lot of levels. Well, well I agree. I agree. Um some of the virtues that for centuries were encouraged and praised, virtues like the, the ability to say no to oneself, the virtue of uh, delayed gratification, uh, we, don't, we don't have that. I mean, we live in a get-it-now, spend-your-way-to-happiness type of society. And, uh, you know, I read recently, I do a lot of work with young people. You mentioned my, my work with youth through Focus on the Family, and I still speak to a lot of teens, do a lot of work on university campuses. The, the average young couple right now, when they say, I do, in their early to mid-20s, uh, average age of a young couple getting married is somewhere around 24 to 27. The, the day that a young couple says, I do, uh, they, on average, will bring into that marriage between themselves somewhere between six and $9,000 of credit card debt not student loan debt. Uh, that's uh, a challenge, but somewhat understandable. But credit card debt, consumer credit card debt, and sometimes as high as $13,000. Now, can, Craig, can you imagine? Uh, it's challenging enough to start a marriage and build a home, but the fact that uh, you would start your, your marriage with six to $9,000 of credit card debt, and then, then we... We encourage them to buy more house than they can afford. And the fact is, individually, nationally, we're living beyond our means. Um, uh, I I wrote this in in an op-ed that went out. I said that Washington, uh, by example, is practicing what I call meth lab economics. Now, we would would condemn uh, a local drug dealer who, uh, you know, handles a controlled substance, uh, you know, hooks people, reels them in, and gradually, you know, takes their life. Uh, but yet, the the government is dealing in a controlled substance called federal money. Uh, people are not living uh, within their means. Uh, that inactivity and and uh, non productivity is rewarded, and uh, the the system 
just doesn't take into consideration human nature, which, according to the Bible, is sinful. Um, when you have uh, entitlements, there's the possibility, the likelihood of abuse of the system, and we see horrible abuses. Uh, and think of the, think of our government giving people, you know, barely enough to subsist, just uh, a check, don't work, don't get a job, uh, Washington will send you a check, um, and you've got to stay in this situation, and, and liberal politicians telling their, their constituency base or their voter bloc, hey, you can't make it without me. And here, here's, here's part of the irony of, of this tax and spend entitlement liberal uh, financial model that uh, we've been under now for four to five decades, uh, which I believe is going to be our country's undoing. Uh, liberalism ostensibly says, "Well, listen, we've got to help people. You know, we've got to, we've got to send checks out to people who, who otherwise couldn't make it. You know, what, what's better for a person to to say, hey, you can't make it without me. I'm the only one you can trust. You need me. You need this check that I can send you. But in return, you've got to vote for me. Uh, I would submit that that's ultimately dehumanizing." To people. Well, i got to tell you, there are many who have argued, as we take a look at the passage of the so-called Great Society um, under Johnson in the 1960s, even though this was touted as this wonderful uh, opportunity to, to finally right a wrong that existed in the country for the better part of uh, you know 150-something, 200 years at that uh, juncture. And what we ended up really doing is, is taking people from literal enslavement to a figurative enslavement, at least for, to to economic enslavement, and now all of a sudden we've seen this major paradigm shift, I think, Dr. McFarlane, where it, it's no longer a safety net to help people out who are genuinely facing the troubles of life that life seems to present, you know, it rains on the just and unjust, but rather to allow people to get enslaved in behaviors and and to be able to escape any sense of personal accountability or responsibility to the point now where uh, America, I think, has kind of gotten addicted to all of this. Uh, indeed, I- indeed, uh, it- it's a disincentive to pursue your own potential as a human being. Uh, and-, and let me say, to a larger degree, uh, we bred uh, a mindset that tells people um, life should be completely pain-free. Life should have no struggle. Uh, you must be insulated from all pain and challenge. And this is a, this is a, a terrible message. Now, um, much of the, the 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 experiences of life that that mature us, that grow us, that strengthen us, the the things that breed greatness and and really provide opportunity for us to be at our best are challenges. Um, having to start at the bottom, uh, having to accept the fact that the world owes me nothing. The world doesn't owe me anything. I'm going to, if I accomplish anything uh, with uh, God and character and self-control and diligence and industriousness, I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves, start at the bottom, uh, work. Uh, You know, we are robbing people of the joy uh, and the gratification of knowing that I did things the right way, maybe the hard way, 
but I, I, I accomplished something. Nothing was given to me. I accomplished something. And so our, our welfare state, and as, as you rightly point out, it does go back to um, you know, LBJ and the Great Society, which I, I think it's, it's become a, just a, a horrible caricature. Um, it's become a hideous monster uh, of, of, of what a truly uh, beneficent society should be. Um, rather than, than giving people an opportunity to grow their character and develop into what God, you know, intends for human beings to become. Well, and the other issue here, too, and I'd like to talk about this a bit more in depth when we come back after a brief break, Dr. McFarland, that is not only robbing people of the opportunity to, to behave right and, and to, to be fully contributing members of society, but then as we enable them to, to take advantage of these so-called entitlements, shifting the burden of accountability and responsibility from the shoulders where it belongs. Again, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have safety nets and people don't have uh, economic challenges and that we shouldn't do something to help them out. Of course we should. But then to suggest that they can, or any individual, can suddenly just sort of live off the public dole with no accountability, no responsibility, uh, without regard to the capacity or ability to work, and then shift that responsibility onto the shoulders of other people, as we do within socialism, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with that as well. We'll come back to more of our conversation, attempting to dissect part of the, the, the answer to the question, what got us here? You know, we're dealing with huge economic problems right now, but as I think you're beginning, hopefully, to understand, most of these economic problems America is facing today have, have very moral roots. Back to more of our conversation, Dr. Alex McFarland, president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, North Carolina, and a host of the nationally syndicated Christian apologetics program, Sound Reason, continues here on Lifeline right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the program. We continue on our conversation tonight with Christian apologist and the president of Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, Dr. Alex McFarland. We've been talking about the morality behind the economic morass that we find ourselves in these days and and, and to come to a clear understanding that as much as there are very clear biblical principles when it comes to sound money money management that any of us can use. In fact, Jesus touched on the topic of money any more than any other topic uh, as revealed within the New Testament, and yet it seems as if there has been a fundamental disconnect at a lot of levels here, not least of which, Dr. McFarlane, as we were mentioning before the break, this sense of not, again, robbing people of a safety net, because things in life do happen, right. but to understand that there is a difference between a safety net and all of a sudden robbing people People of their dignity as we no longer require of them uh, the need to, to act in a responsible fashion, meaning caring for my own family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a big difference between a safety net for the, the indigent or the helpless and a huge machine that's come to reward, not, not only reward those that, that won't work, but also to empower a political system, and I'm speaking of, of liberalism and the, the politicians in Washington that really have a, a, a socialistic view of government and society, not only creating this dependency class that lives on entitlements, not only uh, confiscating the earnings of one group, redistributing 
to another group, uh, engaging really on social reengineering for our culture, but also empowering uh, a group that is contributing to the endangerment of democracy. I say this, Craig, that the preservation of democracy, what America was, what we had for more than two centuries before some 40 years ago we began to uh, gravitate towards socialism, the preservation of democracy depends on a revival of Christianity, a return to the virtues and values on which the country was built. Now, before the break, you asked the question, how did we get here? Um, let me give a, 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 a horribly simplified uh, journey, but uh, it will be a little bit enlightening. Um, from the from the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, um, out of Europe, and, and I'm just going to say this because I, I believe it, um, out of Europe came the Reformation. Uh, 1517, Martin Luther, salvation is by faith in Jesus, and the gospel spread throughout Europe. And what we saw in its aftermath were some very good things, not only the salvation of souls, but uh, literacy and human rights and the, the, the underpinnings of what later became democracy as we know it. And Christianity uh, birthed all of these great things that contributed to the good of people. And, and there was a reason, because Christianity says that we're made in God's image. And because you're made in God's image, you have inherent worth and value and dignity. And out of this uh, European uh, Reformation came not only a, a, a return to the gospel, but many good things. Well, I believe Satan issued a, a counter-strike, uh, the same area that in the 1500s gave us a return to the gospel. By the late 1700s comes higher criticism, rejection of the Bible. Um, uh, rather than letting the Bible change us, we, we begin to pick apart the Bible. By the 1800s, um, criticism of the Bible, it was called German liberalism, began to spread throughout the academic institutions of Europe. One of the people influenced by this was Charles Darwin, who at one time wa uh, was a divinity student. Um, Darwin rocks the world in 1859, uh, although uh, ideas about evolution had been around prior to Darwin, but Darwin really codified it you know, on the origin of species. And so here's this pro progression, follow this. God is not the communicator. We don't trust the Bible anymore. God is not the creator. And think about this. If God is not part of our origin, God is not part of our destiny. If God was not our creator, God will not be our judge. By the late 1800s, the dawn of the 20th century, uh, we've got uh, moral relativism. And by the, the uh, 1950s, 1960s, we've got Joseph Fletcher, Situation Ethics, the New Morality. And here's my point, and, and I, I'll grant you I'm going too fast and I'm simplifying, and I, I flesh this out in a number of my books. But we begin as, as a culture to believe there is no God, there is no ultimate truth, there is no objective reality. Uh, truth is simply what I believe it to be. Uh, there, there is no virtue to be praised. There's no sin or 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 or, um, you know, uh, nothing bad to condemn, uh, slothfulness, uh, 
uh, avarice, the, the things that George Washington and our founders wrote against. So there, there's no good to be praised, there's no bad to be avoided or condemned. And in an evolutionary world, a world with no truth, a world with no ultimate foundation uh, to uh, tether ourselves to, um, we're adrift in a sea of just complete subjectivism. And uh, it's, I, I realize that for people that don't have a biblical worldview, um, it takes a while to get your mind around this, but the, the point is, is as follows, that we have right now in a world with no parameters, no virtue, no value, no ultimate truth, a prescription for societal chaos. Craig, I speak at a lot of universities every year, and and the question I get is, you know, who are you to judge? That's Matthew seven verse one. Um, you know, there was a time when I think one of the most famous scriptures in the Bible would have been John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. I think the most, even though most people who fire this one at me, they don't realize what they're saying. But Matthew seven one uh, says, "Judge not, that you be not judged." Now, let me explain what Jesus was talking about in this. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. Um, essentially, the judge not that you be not judged was not saying don't exercise discernment, uh, don't exercise judgment. Um, it was talking about salvation. Um, in, in other words, I, I should never judge in this way. I shouldn't say, well... Um, I know I deserve to go to heaven. Who does Craig Roberts think he is? I'm a better man than him. That's the kind of presumption and judgment that we're not to engage in, because as far as going to heaven when we die, we're all uh, in need of God's grace and forgiveness through Jesus. But where the Bible does commend, uh, command us to judge, uh, it says that we're to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. We, we are to proclaim truth. But we, we've had so many decades of relativism and denial of God pumped into the public consciousness that now uh, there's this conventional wisdom that there's no truth, no one has the right to ever proclaim this is true, that is false, this is right, that is wrong. We are dying the death of relativism. And I think quite logical the conclusion that you draw, Dr. McFarland, in the sense that if, if now we live in this climate of moral relativism gone rampant, where there's your truth, my truth, everyone's truth, there's no such thing as a, a, a singular, consistent truth that transcends viewpoints and ideas and so forth, uh, then it's logical to suggest, too, that there's there's no one way to spend money or manage money or to be accountable uh, for our finances at the federal level or at the individual level. Uh, you know, some will want to have the opinion that uh, if you do not work, you shall not eat, and that's okay for them. And somebody else says, you know, look, I've determined that the rich have too much money. I'm going to play Robin Hood and take from the rich to give to the poor because I feel that that's a good altruistic uh, thing to be doing. And so all of a sudden now, we, we've got we've gone from moral relativism to economic relativism. We have uh, we have gone to economic relativism, and uh, you know I, I think it's very very um, instructive to go back and look at our, our founding fathers and you know um, the, the the Mayflower Compact. You know the the Pilgrims before they uh, disembarked from the Mayflower and uh, started the Plymouth Colony. You know the Mayflower Compact includes the words having transported here for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. But uh, 
Bradford, William Bradford, who was leader of the, the Plymouth Colony, you know, he instituted things that were very influential and part of our founding uh, private property rights. Everybody had their own little patch of land that they were to work and garden and make productive because he understood human nature, I think, far better than a lot of our leaders today. Boy, isn't that the truth. Hey, listen, uh, Dr. McFarlane, I'm going to have to jump in here. The engineer's giving me the high sign. We're running late for traffic. You mentioned a number of books that you've written. You've got some things that are close to this topic on your website at alexmcfarland.com? Yeah, I've got explanations of my books. I would encourage, if, if I can just put a plug, my book, Stand Strong in College. Every parent ought to have their son or daughter read that before they go to college. Stand Strong in College. I've got a brand new book out, 10 Questions Every Christian Must Answer. My website is alexmcfarland.com. But uh, stand for truth, folks. Pray for America. Do what's right. Teach your kids what's right. And we can see our nation turned around, but the people of God must pray, so let's do it. Yeah, we got to pray and we got to set the example. Alex, we love what you do. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. And again, I just urge you, go to his website. Lots of great resources available there at alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. Dr. Alex McFarland, president of Southern Evangelical Seminary and the host of the nationally syndicated Christian Apologist Program, Sound Reason. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.